0: Welcome to Venture Unlocked. I'm your host, Samir Kaji, and in this week's episode, we have the distinct pleasure to speak with Chris DuVos, one of the most active LPs in the emerging manager universe. Before launching Ahoy Capital, which does both fund investing and co-investing, Chris worked at both VIA, a New Jersey-based fund of funds, and TIF, an outsourced CIO for nonprofits. Chris has always been a conviction-based investor and has never shied away from making early bets into managers and was one of the first LPs at First Round Capital. I always find Chris to be a fun listen, given his long history in venture fund investing and the candor he brings to the market. In our conversation, Chris tells us what he looks for in an emerging manager team, where he sees the market stay, and what managers should think about when pitching institutional LPs. Now, without further delay, let's get into the conversation, hear all of that and more. Chris, welcome to Venture Unlocked. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here with you, at least virtually. So, we're going to have a lot of fun in this conversation. And you and I have known each other for a very long time. I know your story. And we are going to get into how you evaluate managers. Based on my Twitter mentions, people really want to hear from you. But let's start off with your background.
1: Yeah. So, it's weird because like LP isn't a job description that you see, you know, kind of very many places. And I kind of stumbled into it. You know when i was in business school i spent my summer at morgan stanley doing investment banking and you know that's a tough job to start with but in the summer of 2000 it was even worse so i mean this is 20 years ago um in the summer of 2000 it was pretty grim and so i got back from this summer and i was kind of like miserable and i tracked down my friend seth alexander who was then in the yale investments office he was a year behind me in in college um and now he's the cio at mit he's a super smart guy and I said, hey, it seems like you guys do some interesting stuff at Yale Investments Office. Tell me more about it. He's like, dude, it's amazing. It's like the closest you'll ever come to having your own, you know, billion dollar fortune to manage because there's so few constraints we live under. There are low liquidity needs, long time horizons, you know, few tax headaches, you have a single client, i.e. the university. It's amazing. And I was like feeling really stung, you know, something I keep coming back to, and we'll probably talk about a bunch here today. Is the principal agent problem in finance, right? Agents act differently than principals. And and that's something I riff on, but people on the podcast listening to this are are smart enough to know know what it's all about. And I wanted to be more of a principal, and this sounded amazing. So I said, hey, Seth, you know, can I like maybe figure out a way to glom on at at the investments office? He's like, sorry, you missed your chance. We only hire out of college, but go talk to the Princeton guys. And by the way, when you talk to them, talk about timber. He's like, timber is this amazing asset class. If prices for the commodity are low, you leave the trees in the ground, they get, you know, organically, they, you know, they grow and become more valuable. And there's, it's for a long horizon investor. They're this amazing asset class. I went to Princeton and talked all about timber and they said, you know, we like you, you know, you get this, like we want to hire you. So I joined Princeton in the you know spring of one after graduation, you know, we were generalists generally, but I was going to have a focus on, on real assets. And then the venture guy quit. And I was like, whoa, this is actually kind of interesting. They said, who wants to do venture? And nobody wanted to do venture because it was 2001. Venture was in the toilet. Like people don't understand how grim venture can get when there's a downturn. We haven't seen one of these in a long time. And yeah, so it was like one of these scenes in a movie where they say like who volunteers and everybody else steps backwards and the like knowing guy is like standing there in you know, the same spot. And all of a sudden he's like the guy that gets called. And so I started covering venture, and it was amazing. And I fell in love with, you know, Walt Whitman writes about the flashing and golden pageant of California, populous cities and the latest inventions. And it was as true in 2001 as it was in 1850 when he wrote that. And so I started coming out here, and because it was so, like, grim in venture world, I got to hang out, you know, in really, like, intimate, close settings with, you know, awesome people like Henry McCants at Greylock. You know Doug Leone, um, just picking up advice. And those three years I spent, like, marinating in you know in this amazing kind of culture, like, you know, really kind of opened my eyes to how awesome venture is. And so, after a little while, I decided that we were doing you know some stuff at Princeton. A little wrong footed, I thought. Now they're smart guys; they're going to make scads and scads of money. But there was something that I you know stuff I wanted to to really explore. And I bumped into this guy named David Salem, um, who had founded a place called Tiff. And he was a pretty creative thinker. And he and I sat down, and we were talking a little bit, and he said, Chris, you know, a lot of people invest worried about career risk. He says, it seems like you don't give an F about your career. (laughs) You just want to do good investments. And he says, I love that. I'm just magnetized by that. He says, I want you to come and join me and be a courageous investor. I want you to invest heroically. And I was like, boom, you had me at hello. So I joined TIF, had an amazing, you know, seven-year run there, opened the West Coast office, and had uh, you know, just just you know, did a lot of super creative stuff during a really interesting and innovative time in, in venture. Ended up leaving TIFF when TIFF got new leadership and they wanted to kind of consolidate the footprint to one office. We had eight managing directors and six offices, and they wanted to go to one, you know, one main investing office. And they wanted me to come back to Boston. And I love Boston, I live there, but I I said, look, I've been enchanted by the sunny and magical land. Like I'm not, you know, I'm not leaving. And this is where you have to be to do venture. Um, I believed. And so ended up staying out here and called up some buddies that I'd that I'd worked with, you know, kind of looking at funds together for a while and said, Hey, could I bring my shtick, um, you know, kind of build a business within a business um at your shop. And that was VIA. And I was at VIA for seven years until actually tragically my partner passed away. And then I lifted out the little business within the business into my new shop, which is Ahoy Capital.
0: That's great. And, you know, I remember back in the early 2000s, how difficult venture was. And it was actually a time where a lot of fund of funds, we had seen this rise of fund of funds in the late 90s and early 2000s. You've raised your fund of funds and it's really based on discovery and alpha. So you mentioned investing heroically and you picked emerging managers. Why did you pick emerging managers and walk us through maybe the thought process there and the difficulty of raising a fund of funds that invest in these early, early managers in some cases without track records
1: it's really a challenge because i think most of the people who quote unquote buy fund of funds who want to get access to venture through fund of funds you know they want you know quote unquote brand names and it you know it's funny because you know i i got really jaded really quickly to you know the concept of brand names in in that kind of 2001 2002 2003 period because, you know, there are several funds, you know, many of whom are kind of no longer with us, that were just, you know, such, they just behaved so badly in terms of, you know, kind of fiduciary duty and putting their LPs first and, and you know, calling in rich, retiring on the job, all that stuff. And I was like, wow, you know, somebody said to me once, you know, those guys, you know, hustle more for, you know, to get playoff tickets than uh, than they do for deals. And that was, you know, a dynamic that you saw, you know, and so I, I got really cynical and then I got to TIFF. And I'd be pitching to these nonprofits. And, you know, as a joke, I'd take my you know copy of David Swenson's book and, and everybody around the table seemed to have it. And, and I'd say, you know, now for a reading from the book of David, please open a page 263. And, you know, everybody would be like, you know, we, we'd tell the story of venture, but then they'd say like, well, you know, what brand names are you in? And I'd say, well, what are the brand names that you want? And people would say things like Blackstone, KKR. I'm like, look, if you want Blackstone and KKR, like, don't waste my time. you know, I'll just pack up my stuff and go. What I'm trying to offer you here is alpha. And it's really, really tough. As a fund investor, right, we're committing to partnerships that last twice as long as the average American marriage, right? And especially when you kind of lay on top of that, the turnover among LPs, the true evaluation horizon of a fund, sure, you've got, you know, kind of telltales in years, you know, three, four, five, six, but the true evaluation horizon of a fund often lasts more than people's kind of career arc in a Certainly longer than um, right than people's attention spans. Definitely longer than the fundraising cycle. So you've got this like weird dynamic where what I'm actually doing is I'm arbitraging people's inattention. Right, I'm basically telling you like I'm a safe pair of hands, a smart pair of eyes, and I'm going to find you these interesting things, and you're going to like lose interest, but I'm going to put the moolah in the kula down the road. And that's a really hard story to tell because a lot of people say, well, you know, I'm focused on quarterly results. And I'm like, well, you should be focused on, you know, five, seven, 10 year results. And that's a really hard story to tell. The way I tell it is I find, um, you know, kind of a a merry band of fellow travelers. At TIFF, it was great because we had a great, you know, group of of nonprofits, you know, that that kind of would give us money as part of a broader allocation. But at Ahoy, the way I've kind of adapted to that is I've got a group of amazing fellow travelers. It's a really intimate, you know, kind of uh, LP-based, you know, probably, uh, you know, a dozen uh, LPs, you know, that are tend to be, you know, kind of mid-sized endowments and foundations, you know, mostly in the, you know, kind of Midwest, East Coast, um, who basically see me as a bird dog in the valley. So a big part of what we do is we find, you know, we have a portfolio that's ballasted with some, you know, kind of great traditional names. Um, but then we find a lot of cool, um, you know, cool things. And then oftentimes they'll come in over the top, which has been a lot of fun. So like from data collective, their first fund, um, I think between me and our posse, we were like 45% of the fund. That's what I find really gratifying when, when I, and some people say, well, aren't you going to put yourself out of business if all your LPs are coming in over the top? And, and I'm like, well, that would be great if I did, because that means we're making good choices and they're, you know, they're kind of re-upping. And then that means the performance has been good. So I'll have more investors kind of chasing me as a result.
0: You know, you mentioned these LPs who are using you as their scout to look at these really interesting funds that are coming to market in these interesting firms. Presumably, you're taking a little bit more risk to get that alpha by investing in these untested managers versus a fund of funds that only invests in brands. What does that mean for you and how you actually construct the portfolio? Are you investing in? A lot more names than a traditional fund of funds, and what does that look like? You know, ahoy, ahoy itself.
1: Yeah, that's a a great question Um, because a lot of people diversify away their lack of conviction, and what I mean by that is like you you you're you're holding your nose and taking a bet anytime you invest, uh, you know, in in a blind pool. A lot of people um, you know will will build portfolios that are over large and and what I you know it's, they're not diversified they're de-worsified. I tend to be really aggressive in terms of concentration um, because I like to believe that conviction drives concentration so my first um, you know my twenty twelve fund you know the top four names uh, the top four names were seventy five percent of the portfolio in the in the fund that I'm you know kind of uh, investing in out of now, you know, first round is probably going to be 30% of the fund, um, depending on where we end up in terms of the fundraise. So it's pretty, you know, it's pretty aggressive in terms of, you know, the the footprint, you know, there are people who who get concentrated, but I think most fund of funds tend to be a little bit more diversified um, than I do. And, and, you know, we layer in some some co-investments. The reason I tend to be so conviction oriented is because I've actually turned kind of the evaluation process on its head. A lot of people start with performance, and if you start with performance, you know performance is a lagging indicator, not a leading indicator. And so the problem with that is that you know by the time you get conviction based on performance, the fund is fundamentally different than the fund that invested the dollars that generated those returns. So I kind of look at performance as you know the kind of last uh, element of my uh, you know my valuation process. And what I do is I start with people. Right. Like, and I try to understand what is it that those people in that partnership have as their superpower, both individually and communally. Right. And how do those superpowers resonate with each other? Because every team is a well, every great team is a well-rounded whole that's made up of jagged pieces that fit together. You know, and and, of course, in the case of single gps, you know w- you know what is it that that person they have a particular domain expertise or you know what is it that they are you know outstanding at? Uh, do they leverage a specific network like stuff like that in a in a robust and and unique way? um and then I look at the strategy, and I need to understand that the strategy and the people uh, you know resonate, and one thing I'm seeing a lot of right now is I have entrepreneurs come to me. Um, you know, that they're just starting a fund. And, and we'll talk more about, um, you know, about kind of the new fund world and emerging managers in a bit. But, you know, one of the challenges, is I think, you know, starting a fund after being in a company, I was like going to law school after being a history major, like, it's just the thing that you do. And I think a lot of people don't really think it through and don't really understand the process of being a fiduciary. And that's a whole nother discussion. But a lot of people come to me and they say, Oh, I'm a business builder, I'm a business builder. And then they're like, I'm like, they'll tell me about your portfolio construction. They're like, well, I'm going to make 55 investments in the next 18 months. And I'm like, well, then you're not a business builder. You're trying to be a stock picker, right? And so I need to make sure that the strategy and the people resonate, right? The skill set resonates with what they're trying to do. Out of the people and the strategy falls the portfolio. And that was actually one of the reasons why at, at TIFF I moved out west is because it's so helpful to be here in the hotbed of invention and innovation. Um, because you get to see, you know, and get to know and plug yourself into the networks of the entrepreneurial set, which is where, where the actual data that I use to kind of make decisions rests. So, you know, when I was at Princeton, again, Princeton, we were super smart, but we had so much money to push around. The way we did, um, investing was we ran up and down Sand Hill road. We said, Hey, John Doerr, who's good today? Hey, you know, Doug Leone, who's good today? And you're just getting warmed over conventionalism. But being out here and understanding the portfolio and going to visit the companies and spending time with the entrepreneurs and the people in the ecosystem, you know, that's the proof of the pudding. That's the people and the strategy in action. And when I get conviction, when I start to see, you know, get really excited uh, you know, about what I'm seeing at that level, you know, that's that's when I make a high conviction bet.
0: Let's speak a little bit about conviction and people and strategy in particular. I love the story how you were one of the first, if not first investors in first round capital when Josh got started. What did you see there? I mean, what was it about that with the people there, the strategy that got you so excited to be one of the first?
1: It was so much fun. That was such a a great kind of time in the entrepreneurial world, world, because one of the reasons I'd left Princeton was our footprint had changed. We were, you know, at that point when I left $9.6 billion dollars, and we were writing big beefy checks and we had this self-imposed rule that we didn't want to be more than a certain percentage of the fund because when you're you know a big big LP you're actually creating more risk not only for yourself but also for the GP you know we were basically we had this rule where we we were had a preference to write checks of $50 million and larger and we couldn't be more than 20% of the fund so we were like $250 million minimum fund size you know unless there were, you know exceptions And I was starting to spend a lot of time with people like Tim O'Reilly, I bumped into Eric Reese, like all these guys who are talking about how the entrepreneurial finance ecosystem was changing radically. And I was like, this is, there's something afoot here. Like for people, you know, today lean startup is is in our blood, right? Like we, it's, it's obvious. But in 2002, 2003, 2004, it was just the first murmurings. And I was like, wow, if this stuff is true. Then I gotta get on this bandwagon and I can't do it at Princeton. And that's why when David Salem said to me, I want you to invest heroically and courageously, I was like, whoa, you got me. I started spending time with entrepreneurs. I'd loved, you know, and and not people that GPs would introduce me to, because then there's this like weird dynamic, but I would like find people in my alumni mag or I would like bump into people at, you know, at annual meetings, you know, the entrepreneurs who were who were doing talks. And I would say, like, yeah, you know, on the slide, I'd be like, Hey, can I hang out the next time we're, you know, I'm in the Bay Area. And i go to these companies on a Friday afternoon. I remember I was sitting at Video Egg, which was uh, an awesome company in that era. And I show up with two cases of beer and I'm sitting there with the guys and we're just jibber-jabbering you know, for hours. And I remember one of those guys said to me, said, hey, you know, w- you know, we've got this great investor, Josh Koppelman out of Philadelphia. He really gets what's going on in, the, in these dynamics. And it turned out their first round's office was in Conshohocken, which wasn't far from where Tiff's office was. And so Josh and I spent two years getting to know each other. And the thing that really got me excited about First Round was I believed in all of the lean startup stuff but I also believed that a single GP was going to be overmatched by the enormity of the market. And Josh sat there and articulated, you know, today First Round talks about turning VC on its head and what he mean, what he meant by that at the time was how do you create a peer-to-peer community, right? Like And I said, and that's what I said, I said, you know, kind of what you're talking about is you're not talking about a portfolio, you're talking about a community. He goes, exactly. You want to remove the venture capitalist as the hub in the middle of a hub and spoke network because they're the bottleneck. You want to create this peer-to-peer dynamic. And I was like, oh my God, you, you had me at hello. So we committed a couple million bucks to FRC 2007, which was the last of the Friends and Family Funds. So we were two out of the 15 million. Um, and then I was so excited by what was going on. They had some really, you know, good, good progress in that fund. And then we, uh, Josh said, Hey, will you help me raise, you know, this fund? And I said, absolutely. You know, we did a big chunk at TIFF. Um, and then I introduced them to Yale and Princeton and Northwestern and all that stuff. And it was such a thrill to be you know, part of the, the kind of early days at FRC uh, because it really felt like this, you know, this innovation. And then, you know, A16Z kind of picked up on that in terms of what they they were doing, right? And that was a really, I think, important kind of thread of, you know, venture capital. The one thing I'll say, which by the way, I'm, I'm laughing about this, you know, in retrospect, and I won't name the law firm, but, you know, FRC's law firm, I remember they, you know, Josh went to them and said, hey, you know, we're we're going to do this institutional fund, you know, DuVos is going to be our anchor. Um, can we get them some docs? And they were like, okay, cool. Duvos just did August Capital. And we did August Stocks. We're just going to you know, kind of dupe and replace and give you August Stocks. And I'm like, my dude. my dude, this is like, I'm sorry, you're not going to get a premium carrier, you know, first time institutional fund. I'm sorry, you're not gonna get all like August has earned all this stuff over time. And I say that and I laugh about it. But I say that kind of ironically, because the number of like, first time managers I see who throw me a premium term, term sheet is actually like dismaying to me. It's like you don't deserve premium terms just because you live in the 415 area.
0: (laughs) Well, we'll get into your pet peeves in a minute. But you know, FRC is just such an amazing story and one that so many GPs aspire toward, but it's a very different world today. And the number of firms out there, we count well over a thousand. When you look at people and strategy, what exactly are you actually looking for? What does it mean to have an edge?
1: Yeah, it's really interesting know, you bring that up because I remember in like 2009, uh, which seems like a lifetime ago. First Round had on their webpage, they said, you know, they had this thing that said, Felicis, Floodgate, First Round, Founders, you know, all these F firms. And by the way, they listed all of them and there were like 20 of them. And, they, and they, they said, like, the joke was like, what the F, right? Like, why is everybody picking an F? But that was what was crazy in those days. It was literally, you know, a dozen, you know, managers in kind of 2005, 6, 7. The essence of investing is you want to hit them where they ain't. Um, as we, we Willie Keeler said, and you know there's a thing in investing called the fallacy of composition. And the way to describe the fallacy of composition is it's like if you're at a concert and you can't see, you stand up and now you can see. But then when everybody else stands up, now you can't see, right? And so it was interesting because first round did this uh, retrospective on their ten year anniversary, and they put it online, and it was really interesting. Of how the venture business had changed, and they had like eight metrics, and you know one was pricing of seed rounds, and you know there's counterpoints all the stuff like seed, you know, round companies are further along, and it's cheap, you know, all. The, I, I get that there's a you know debate, but like seed stage deals had gone up by you know in terms of price by a factor of three, right? The time to evaluate companies that you know in their experience had dropped, uh, you know, from a hundred days to forty days, and today it's probably four days, right? And by the way, one of the things, you know, just as an aside, one of the things I learned hanging out with Mr. McCants at Greylock in the, you know, in the Princeton days was Mr. McCants and he said, hey, divas, venture works best when time is cheap and capital is expensive. And what happens during bubbles is time gets expensive and capital gets cheap. And when that happens, watch out. That felt when First Round was doing their retrospective um, you know, a few years ago, it felt like that then. It feels even more like that today. There's just capital slinging around and nobody has time to, to engage. So that's actually the thing that kind of worries me most. And so as I look, you know, back to your question, you know, so many people come to me, they send me emails about their differentiated strategy. Well, you know, I once had a meatball sub with mayonnaise by accident. And that was differentiated too. It sucked, right? Like that, I mean, you know, differentiation is not in itself a good thing. What you want is a sustainable competitive advantage, right? So that's what I preach. Like that's what I tell everybody. You know, like your success in getting a meeting with me is to be able to articulate some sort of sustainable competitive advantage. And by the way, you know, your sustainable competitive advantage is not like I'm one of the San Francisco cool kids. Because by the way, there are a lot of San Francisco cool kids. And by the way, you know, who even knows if if that's an interesting and durable strategy? Because by the way, it could just be, uh, you know, a strategy for investing in, you know, kind of overpriced momentum rounds of programmer-led companies, right? right? Your sustainable competitive advantage has to be articulable and, you know, kind of interesting, you know, in kind of a, a long-term dynamic way. That's a very like abstract thing for me to say um so let me put like a little bit of you know kind of finer point on it like one of the things that's been interesting for me over the last few years has been trying to leverage university ecosystems right and so when i see someone with a sustainable competitive advantage i look at guys like um maybe the e14 fund or the house fund at berkeley e14 funds at mit and they are on campus and they're seeing Kind of things that are that are you know at the na- most nascent stages, and they're getting a jump on everybody else, and can get their dollars in further. And by the way, help set the DNA of those companies and get them moving on the right track. That's an interesting you know kind of sustainable you know competitive advantage. Or I have a, another fund called Rhapsody out of Boston, doing some really interesting stuff. We've done several um, you know, co investments with those guys. And what I love is they're doing things like material sciences and you know kind of weird funky tech that that nobody else is doing. And they've built a real kind of footprint in. They will pull you know it's almost like a tech transfer thing, and they'll pull these you know technologies out. They have this great company, Fluid Efficiency, where we're where we just participated in around where they pull the company out of Caltech and then they act as some of the you know key kind of business building you know the finance and, and early biz dev and stuff like that, and, and put in that sweat equity, that's a sustainable competitive advantage because they are good at it. Being friends with, you know, spinning out of hot tech company, A, and then being friends with all the kind of folks coming out of there doesn't necessarily, you know, kind of portend the same kind of sustainable competitive advantage. See
0: your definition, just if I'm reading into it correctly, having a strategy that truly has some long-term durability and isn't just the short-term arbitrage is really, really important. But as you look at the DNA of the individual or founding team, are there certain traits there? You know, we've seen people spin out of big firms that have started their own franchises. We've seen angels turn full-time VCs and certainly we've seen operators is there something that you look for in particular that says okay there is a you know GP thesis fit here
1: going back to to Josh K who's you know maybe my you know platonic ideal of a venture investor i think Josh would even say he's not the best investor he might even be the third best investor at that firm but what Josh is is he's a fund entrepreneur right like he's he had the insight that the venture firm is a service provider he is you know been a business builder of first round as a business, right? I'm not saying that's, you know, the only path, but what I mean, when I say that, the reason I bring that up is the people that I look for are business builders. They're not option seekers. And, you know, that's, that's something that's, you know, where I feel like we've been, you know, overrun a little bit. Um, It's, you know, I call it the SPVification of the venture world. Where basically, you know, everybody's like, hey, I'm a cool programmer coming out of Company X. I'm just gonna raise a series of SPVs and I'm gonna own all this optionality. None of them net against each other. I just need one of them to hit. And you know, I, I don't wanna paint with too broad a brush because there are some people doing that who are, you know, good, long-term, thoughtful investors and partners. But I believe that venture investors uh, should be catalytic partners where they can engage with the companies they can pick well obviously they have a you know an investment engine that makes sense um and and they can pick good companies but once those good companies are picked then they can actually be helpful insightful you know kind of partners in the growth of those companies and you know the, so, you know some people say well you know you don't want to like take the the wheel out of the hands of the founders and we've seen venture capitalists do that but you know like somebody once said to me Ron Conway you know I get 1 hour of Ron's time you know this is 10 years ago said so I get an hour of Ron Conway's time but it's the most impactful hour and there'll be three connections that he makes and that like changes the trajectory of my company and that's actually kind of what I'm you know what I'm looking for and you know and so so and you have like a bunch of different ways to skin that cat you got first round that's been, built a whole platform infrastructure to do just that for for companies. And then you've got guys like another of our investments, Ross Fabini, who Ross is everybody's favorite, you know, VP of engineering. Um, that's how somebody described him to me once. And he kind of like gets in and like kind of does some stuff with the companies and they're like, you talk to Ross's entrepreneurs, they're like, oh my God, like we're so much better off, you know, for having had like that little smidge of, of Ross's time. He's been such a great, you know, kind of partner, he's almost like a co founder, that's really powerful and important stuff.
0: You know what you're describing, and and I thought you were going a slightly different direction in that concentrated portfolios that allow the GPs to spend a lot of time business building. But what you're really saying is having the opportunity to help companies in meaningful ways, regardless of how large the portfolio is. But you know, portfolio construction comes up all the time when I talk to GPs. And yeah, at the seed level, we see everything from really concentrated portfolios that are 15 to 20 companies all the way to you know, portfolios that are 50 companies plus. Do you have an inclination toward either side of that spectrum? And you know, is there something optimal you see in terms of how many companies should be in a seed portfolio?
1: I wrote a blog post a long time ago called All About the Benjamins, which was um, where I talked about this concept of return the fund equivalent, which basically I said, look, you know, it's actually a really interesting Rorschach. To look at a portfolio and understanding, you know, funds ownership, the money they've put into it, the fund size, like, basically, it's it's an arithmetic problem. Based on that, you have to look at each company along those metrics, you can figure out what the exit you need of that company, you know, kind of what what size exit do you need for each individual company to return the fund. And it's funny because, you know, we all bow at the, the you know, kind of altar of power law. Um, and my biggest like career with is not understanding how much more powerful power law would have become. So, you know, still wearing my like mid 2000 hat where, you know, I think, uh, you know, a $2 billion exit is a, you know, is a, <laughs> is a big exit, obviously, you know, I don't believe that anymore, but like, but, you know, you look at some of these funds and they're just so s- spread so thin and they own like such little teeny tiny ownership that even if they do get a $10 billion exit, it's not even returning, you know half their fund. It's returning a third of their fund or a quarter of their fund. So now you're like, wow, you need to be in three of those just to return one x your fund right? And then you need to be in six of those, right? So you start getting into these discussions where people are just like buying a bunch of options, right? Which is, I think, the big problem in venture today. Everybody's like shopping at the bodega, you know, buying lottery tickets. I I always say like, you know, uh, one of my lines I would say is like, you know, we're just using lottery slogans with Ivy League veneer. You know, optionality is the same thing as, hey, you got to be in it to win it, right? And so... That's the thing I, I worry a lot about is people are building these portfolios, you know, they're banking on like really discontinuous exits. And those just don't happen as often as they do. And when they do happen, you have to ask the question, do I own enough of this to really make an impact? So, you know, you look at somebody like True Ventures, you know, those guys are really disciplined about ownership. And, you know, there's a difference between being disciplined and being dogmatic. I know some people get, you know, get really dogmatic about it and have missed out on deals. But the True guys, you know, they've been very disciplined about, you know, large ownership stakes. And then you look at, you know, what Peloton has done. That's like a generational, you know, that's a big outcome. Like, you know, but not, you know, we've definitely seen bigger outcomes. But like for True, it is so discontinuously big because they own so much, right? And that's fantastic. And that's... um, so I look at people and I the first thing I do I ask is like, okay, so which companies are gonna return your funds? And like what's amazing is that people will like talk about the hot companies and I'm like, okay, well let's do the arithmetic on that. And then that you actually do the, and I'm like, wow, you'll need a $70 billion exit for that company. That, and that's actually like really interesting. So back to it, like look, first round is my like platonic ideal manager. Their portfolio is probably even too big for, for my tastes in terms of number. But then they do a great job of triaging down and concentrating, um, and putting more wood behind the arrow, and, and I think put themselves in a good position, and not everybody does.
0: You're so right to bring up the math, and you know I wrote a blog about this. What is the enterprise value needed to get to a three x net, which really is a three and a half x gross? Probably above that when you take into account that the investable capital in a fund is going to be usually far less than a hundred percent for a you know typical seed stage fund. The other issue, you know, I. Often here is the time to liquidity, which continues to extend out. And you've brought up the term famously, Moolah and the Are there things that you think will accelerate the liquidity curve for LPs? And how big a problem is this?
1: The reason that's a problem is because especially when funds are raising, you know, at quicker cadences, larger funds, you know, wanting bigger checks from LPs. You know, you need to be recycling distributions, right? That's the nirvana. If you're, um, you know, if you're a, a, an LP, is you get to the point where your distributions from your older funds are now paying for the capital calls of the newer funds, and then some, right? And when you get to that nirvana, we were there at Princeton, and it was just amazing because you can really then lean into into the asset class. The problem is now, as you said, the the horizon's gotten so much longer that it's interrupting this flow, and the fundraising cycle has gotten shorter. And so this is why a lot of the LPs that you talk to that are, you know, kind of more sophisticated have been around longer are so far out over their allocations are at 1.5x, 2x their allocations. They don't have a denominator problem. They have a numerator problem. And that's really challenging. Right. And so, you know, we need to, you know, unlock, you know, it's been a decent year for liquidity. I'm actually kind of I don't love SPACs. And there's, that's a whole nother discussion. But I actually like applaud them. You know, first round is 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 doing a SPAC with you know in Clover Health with Chamath. I think that's you know, that'll accelerate the liquidity for that company. And you know, that's fantastic. You know, direct listings I think are really, really important. I hope we see a lot more of them. I think they're much more efficient than um, you know, than SPACs. Um and I hope that you know large tech firms, you know, start to use some more of the capital because we need to get the money back. Um, you know, sooner, because my worry is if companies, you know, the cycle of technology is so fast today, that if companies are, are you know, private too long and can't access the public markets and get that much cheaper capital, um, you know, that they themselves will become, you know, the disruptor might become disrupted, right? I, we've seen that in a bunch of companies where companies just stayed private too long, and an upstart has come along and, and, you know, kind of started to eat away at their market and plateaued their growth. I think that's a big problem.
0: Yeah, I agree with that, and you know certainly SPACs and direct listings seem to grease uh, the skids a little bit in terms of companies going public. But what about the you know LP stakes? What about the secondary market? It doesn't seem like there's been a massive increase in efficiency there. Does that change, or does it kind of stay steady state as it's been?
1: This is a question for somebody smarter than me because I've been so baffled. I mean, I've been doing this for long enough that I'm like, you know, and we saw a huge push in like the mid late to you know aughts you know like there was shares post a bunch of these things and we've seen you know kind of some of these you know know, halting things start but they haven't gotten you know they haven't caught fire the way i thought they would there's so much like i i think demand for liquidity and so much capital on the side and the market's just not clearing and i don't understand it you know one thing i am excited about um is long-term stock exchange right? Like, I think that's another, you know, modality where we might be able to see, I think it provides a much more gentle pond for, you know, in which to release, you know, these younger fish. Um, and I think that could be a very important kind of part of the capital markets, you know, but back to the secondaries thing, you know, it's, it's a real question to me of, you know, why we're not seeing actually a liquid secondary market in these real, really mature companies.
0: And I think that also holds true for LP stakes and, you know, seeing those uh, be really liquid in, in secondary markets, I just haven't seen it either. Shifting to the market today, you know, you and I have had these conversations over the years about the growth of the number of venture funds out there. Where do you see the market today?
1: You know, my crystal ball's in the shop. <laughs> so, uh, and I don't have a monopoly in wisdom, but one thing that I really struggle to square is the number of people who are raising funds versus number of people are building companies and one of the things that was kind of part of the fabric of silicon valley forever was that people get recycled from company to company to company in fact somebody once said to me you know if you want to know how many shots on goal you have is at intergenerational wealth you know take the number you know how old you are in the year at which you want to retire you know that's your number of years and divide that by four Um, and that's the number of shots on goal you have. And I'm like, why four? And they're like, well, that's the vesting period. So you go from a startup to startup, to startup, to startup. And it seems like that has been interrupted by people taking these off ramps into venture. And I'm like, wow, there's so many people I meet with. And I'm like, why aren't you building a company? Why are you doing venture? And I think it's because people think it's, you know, it's the same reason that, you know, a few years back, two thirds of the NYU med school class went to hedge funds, healthcare hedge funds, right? Like, it just seems too easy. We've made it, you know, kind of too easy to raise funds. And there's this perception that you can make so much money. But the reality is that, um, that I think there's still yet more money to be made in building something that is, you know, meaningful. Um, and so that's my little like on my soapbox, you know, thing. It's harder, right? It's harder. It's, it's easy to like, you know, sit in, you know, an office somewhere and and pick socks, especially if you have, you know, LPs willing to give you, you know, all the optionality that you want at their expense, by the way. But I will tell you that, um, that that's what I worry about. So there are too many people chasing too few deals. What I am actually pretty excited about, though, is, you know, kind of diversity, equity and inclusion. Um, I think, you know, for too long, venture has been... Uh, you know a little bit of a club and uh, and i think that there are a lot of people bringing a lot of new energy and opening up new markets you know i think i think of people like uh, you know like the new age capital guys um you know who are really authentic to to their space and doing some really interesting stuff um dante and ivan um and those guys are are really thoughtful and i think we we may start to think about venture in in different ways i think that that is maybe uh, you know, and we're seeing a lot going on with uh, you know with female entrepreneurs. And what, you know, part of what I think that means is that like is that you know, right now we have this vision of what venture it is. It's you know, some, you know, Stanford grad building a SaaS company, you know, whatever. Right. I think I think there are venture backable businesses. Bryce Roberts has looked at a lot of this kind of stuff with with NDVC. There's real money to be made um in businesses that have been traditionally overlooked. And I think it's really hard. You know, for people like me who are stale, male, and pale to really, you know, tap into this kind of stuff. And so I'm really excited about the, the new generation of folks that are getting up and running.
0: I am 100% with you on that. And certainly the DEI is near and dear for a lot of different reasons. And I do think there's um, better capital that's going to flow to founders and certainly opportunities for even more alpha investing in a lot of these underrepresented managers. Moving to different type of models for a second. And you've always preached crawl, walk, run. And what we're seeing with a lot of new managers is they're, you know, leveraging options like angelist rolling funds, doing it part-time, you know, investing in companies. Do you view rolling funds as a option to kind of start? Is it viable? And at what point do you think institutional LPs start investing in rolling fund managers or do they?
1: I think that rolling funds have a place, um, you know, I'm all for innovation, but I also worry that sometimes when you innovate, uh, you know, it, it also kind of sets you a step back. And I like rolling funds, I like the ability to kind of get up something up and running like we, you know, I love the idea of syndicates, like, the, how do we kind of break down the barriers to, you know, to entry, and that particularly, I think helps, you know, kind of people outside the club. And I think that's great. Um, I think rolling funds themselves are a flawed product for several reasons. One is, uh, you know, kind of, as you you know mentioned, you know, p- the, the concept of a part-time VC to me is like unbelievable because as a VC, you are a fiduciary, right? Like you are, you are taking on somebody's money. And like, I don't think a lot of people like really understand what fiduciary duty means, but it means that you put your, do- you put your investors' dollars ahead of your own dollars right? Like their interests ahead of your interests. And that's a really important concept in investing. And as an investor, you know, an institutional investor, professional investor, you know, I'm bound by fiduciary duty, I have to put, you know, I have to make decisions that could disadvantage me, but advantage my my investors, and I love doing that, because I live for them, right? Uh, um, And part of the, you know, there's also this thing, part of the fiduciary rule, is you've got to be a prudent person, and you know, all this stuff, there's all this stuff, that's actually like the law. Right. And people are like part-time dilettantes and they're just throwing a bunch of options out there, they're going to the bodega, but buying a bunch of lottery tickets, and people are giving them money for this. And then, like, the question then is like, how do you then institutionalize that? So if somebody comes to me, which by the way, every you know, I get so many people who come to me with their syndicate and it's you know generated like 35% returns which like in normal times would be great, but like, I'm like, okay, well, how much moolah have you put in the cooler? Right. And it's like, you know, if you guys remember the movie, the Incredibles, like it's, you know, the bad guy was syndrome. And he said, you know, he wanted to like create, you know, super people because once, you know, everybody's super, nobody will be like, everybody has, you know, good, good portfolios, but how do I judge you? Like, okay, you want me to now write you a $10 million check for you to go and, you know, based on the fact that you made a bunch of dilettante, you know, bets, and now you're gonna. And by the way, I like catalytic managers who are really involved. It just, does, I don't know how you square that circle. Now, maybe people use rolling funds and, and use them, you know, in a in a really engaged way. What I see more people doing is is you know being kind of um, you know transactional about them, and and that transactional nature is, I think, a, a, an artifact of this era. I want people who are are you know. Investors, not traders.
0: Bessemer has their anti portfolio that they put on their website. Do you have your anti portfolio? Can you think of a couple names that you would put in there?
1: You know, now rewind to like two thousand eight, two thousand nine. Um, I had a lot of conviction around um, you know s- small funds and and you know micro VC and stuff, and I took baseline to my investment committee, and you know we'd just done FRC and and uh, Floodgate and a bunch of other things. Um, and one of my investment committee members said, you know, this is, this feels like, I don't believe in these small funds. This feels like the triumph of, you know, of hope over, uh, over experience. And I kind of let, I just let it, let it die. I was like, okay. He said, if you want to fight for it, like convince me. And I kind of just let baseline die. And same thing with Felicis. Um, and those are two big whiffs where I was, you know, I used to hang out with Iden all the time, just have lunch at Evia. Those are, t- you know, two funds that have turned out to be great funds that I've I just totally whiffed on.
0: A lot of people that are listening are GPs that have either pitched you or want to pitch you. What is the uh, single piece of advice you'd give to somebody pitching you?
1: The essence of, you know, being an institutional LP is being a long-term investor. And so what I what I tell people is, look, you, you marry in haste and repent at leisure. So I, I you know, I got to know Josh Copeland over two years. I got to know Matt Ocko and Zach Bogue over, um, you know, over a year and a half um, before I did that data collective fund um in 2011 as you come and pitch me first come with a thoughtful articulation of your sustainable competitive advantage union square guys talk a lot about repeatability right like i'm looking for people you know somebody once said i'm looking for lucky investors and you know what they really meant and they they chuckle about that because what they really meant and was clear is, you know, some people make their own luck, and that's that's the repeatability and, uh, and and that process. So, so articulate that, and then just realize that you know this is the first step. So many people think because they fund companies in four days that I'm going to fund them in four days. Um, I you know I have to get to know you. You may be investing in in an asset that you know in a market and and a management team. I'm investing in you. And so whereas you need to understand you know, what that company does and what makes that company tick, I need to understand your behavioral footprint and you know, what, you know, all these things about you that take time. And so acknowledge that um, and that this is probably a multi-year discussion. Um, I think that's the thing I hear most from LPs is they like to get to p- know people outside the fundraising process when there's no kind of question you know, to be called. And I think that's, that's really important advice that I think a lot of people are not sensitized to.
0: Yeah, no, that's great. Last question. and I'll take the reverse. Is there a single red flag that when somebody's pitching you, if they say it, it's going to be a quick no?
1: Probably the quickest no is when somebody comes in and starts, um, you know, kind of just rattling off, you know, 10 companies that they just invested in that they think are going to be multi-billion dollar companies. You know, because number one, I'm hearing about the same 10 companies from everybody else. Um, it's amazing how many times people, you know, I say, what are your three most interesting companies and why and all that stuff. And and it, it's the same companies all the time. It's actually amazing how many, you know, success has many fathers, right? Um, and the reason I say that it's, I, I love the optimism and the optimism is an important part of what we do but i think what people don't articulate well and and shows to me a lack of self-awareness and a lack of awareness of the process is that these companies have like real ups and downs and and very often don't end up on the trajectory that you think they'll end up on so i'd rather you tell me you know the companies you're excited about but also the challenges those companies will face and also if you can help with those challenges boom that starts to become a more interesting conversation
0: yeah, well, well, thanks again, Chris, for being on the show. I mean, this was so much fun. I actually have a ton of other questions. I think that is a good excuse to have version two at some point. But uh, again, appreciate all the candor. Hey, my pleasure,
1: and thank you for all that you do for the ecosystem. I mean, you really have built a really amazing presence—the blog and now the, uh, the podcast—and everything you guys do at, at First Republic is amazing. And so, uh, you know, I just, I just want to thank you for everything that all the good you've done in the ecosystem.
0: Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Venture Unlock. To learn more about Chris, Ahoy Capital, and the keys to starting and growing a great VC firm, be sure to go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify where you'll find detailed notes for the show. While you're there, please leave us a rating. It really, really helps us out. And hit the subscribe button in order to get each and every Venture Unlock episode as soon as it's released.